Church, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, specifically Colossians 3 verses 17, 18, and 19 this morning. Colossians 3. One of the commitments that I have that hopefully you have discovered in the couple months that we've been together is that I'm committed to walk through sections of Scripture, books of the Bible, to continuously uh, exposit, to explain, to illustrate, to apply God's Word as it is given to us. That is the, the steady diet that I will, I will give Sunday after Sunday to you. I do that because I have a commitment, as I know you do, that God's Word is inspired, that God's Word is trustworthy, and so we heed God's Word. We hear God's Word as it has been giver, given to us. I believe that the Word of God does the work of God in the midst of the people of God. And so to experience what He wants to do and how He wants to lead us, that means at times we, we live under words that are controversial, live under words that can be confusing and even misappropriated in the 21st century. If I was uh, a topical preacher... I probably, I'm 100% sure, I would not bring up this topic. Some of you have been kind of reading ahead in Colossians. It doesn't take long to do that. You can read Colossians in, in 10 minutes, and you've said, you're preaching through Colossians. There's some interesting things in Colossians chapter 3 about wives submitting to husbands. Are you going to preach on that? And my answer has always been, well, I've got to ask Danielle first if I can <laughs> do that. No, uh, you know, it, it is, it, if, if I was to just choose what I was going to preach, I am 100% sure I would never in a given sermon have the two words wives and submit ever in the same sermon. I just wouldn't do that because it's outside of, of my comfort zone in so many respects. And not only is it outside of my comfort zone, I have the great privilege of preaching this message three times on Sunday morning. So... But God's Word speaks to us, and as we're walking through the book of Colossians, this is where we are. The first 16 verses of Colossians uh, talked about taking off the clothing of the world, putting on the clothing of Christ, and then we come to verse 17 that sums up, just sums up Paul's argument in those first 16 verses of Colossians 3, as he's given admonishment to who we are called to be as those that are under the grace and lordship of Christ. And so he says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What are some of the things that are everything that we're called to do? Well, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It continues in verse 20 through 25 to continue with, with admonitions to parents and to children. There are admonitions in the marketplace of, of slaves and their masters, and we'll talk about those in the coming weeks. My intention uh, originally this week was to to preach a message just about marriage, and, and we're going to talk to wives, and we're going to talk to husbands, 
And on Wednesday, it was about 35 minutes. And then on Thursday morning, it was 45, growing into 55 minutes. And we just don't have 55 minutes. You know, these passages, they're just two verses. And so, really, they need to be heard together. And so, next week, we'll talk to husbands as we wish we could do today. But you're going to be talked to this morning. Don't, don't worry. Wives, don't be nervous. I'm going to talk to your husbands too. Bring them back next week. Don't let them go fishing next week right there. Don't let them go hunting. This is a word from the Lord that we need to hear these two verses right here. Now, we need to do some dirt work. We, we need to have an adequate foundation. And to do that, we need to think carefully about the misconceptions of submission. Are there many words that are New Testament words that contain as much emotional freight as the word submission in context to marriage? These are words that for some of you, they, they hearken back to leave it to beaver. Husband gets home, June Cleaver meets him at the doorway with a kiss on the cheek as she's been slaving over dinner. She's been ironing all the clothes. And as he goes to sit down at the table that's prepared after his workplace, she's pulling out the rolls from the oven. And for some people in this room, submission carries and denotes the sense of all of the domestic duties, all of the family duties. You think submission, you think that all is given to the bride to the wife. On the other hand, some of you hear this word and you think all, all in the family. You think Edith Bunker, who's having to put up with her obnoxious, offensive husband, and she sort of is kind of has to grin and bear it and just put up with those kinds of things. And so we have these two polar extremes. And then in all seriousness, there is, a, there is another pattern where this passage has been utilized outside of appropriate context and has been misused. And, and I, I want to speak to this delicately. But this passage has been utilized in the history of the Christian church and there has been physical abuse, emotional abuse, all under the umbrella of these passages so we want to say from the outset, this is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And the misuse of a passage then should not prevent us from then saying, what does the passage actually mean? And it very well may be that there's some of you in this room that have, have seen personally your family, friends, or even your family tree how this passage was misused. And my heart and our church's heart goes out to you in the midst of tears that have been come from and have streamed from this passage. But we want to think about how Paul, in the original first century context, that this wasn't an archaic verse here. Actually, this was a revolutionary verse. See, when you know this about what we're reading in that first century world, outside of the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman world, there was what was called household codes. So you can see this. Ancient literature outside of the New Testament, household codes that give admonitions to wives, give admonitions to parents, give admonitions to children, give admonitions to slaves. 
Do you know what admonition was given in those secular household codes to husbands? Nothing. Not a single thing was said to them because in that first century world, a wife's essence, a wife's dignity, it was 100% tied to her being married to that husband who was the tyrant, who was the boss. This was that first century context. And so when Paul speaks not only to wives, which they would have been familiar with, but speaks to husbands, what is he doing? He is exalting both of them to be equal in essence. You see, what is so countercultural about what Paul is doing is, is he's speaking not only to wives, they would have known that, but by speaking to husbands, he is reminding them of their dignity, that they also were created in the image of God. He is doing something that would have been revolutionary in that first century context that we might lose in our 21st century context. So it's important for you to, to look at this passage here and see some of the misconceptions. But we don't want to stop there. We, we want to continue on to think about the model of submission. Now again, look with me at Colossians 3, verse 18. One verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He doesn't give any other detailing of how to do this. There's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine steps to how a wife would do this. He gives the, the context as, do this because it is fitting in the Lord. We have verse 17. We have the previous 16 verses that couch the husband and wife relationship in all of the lordship of Christ. So under his lordship, under his leadership, so then comes the practical matters of that essential union between a husband and a wife. But there are no further details in Colossians 3 of how to do this, wives. Many of you know that we, we've come to the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the pillars of the Reformation was sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone. So we, we believe in the authority of scripture, and we stand under the authority of scripture. But not only did the reformers exalt the Bible to the place of centrality, but they also helped us interpret the Bible too. And a reformational principle of biblical interpretation is what's called the analogy of faith. And that is where there are portions of scripture, and we all would admit this as, as people that live under scripture, where all is not said in a particular context, it's helpful for you to take a 10,000 foot view or a 20,000 foot view and say, where's more clarity uh, shown upon this passage? And aren't we all glad that as we come to the husband and wife relationship that Paul speaks really clearly about this in another New Testament epistle, uh, New Testament, uh, New Testament epistle that we're going to listen to today, but also next week. So turn with me to Ephesians 5, verses 17 through 33, because it fills out Colossians 3, verse 18. It fleshes out for us and helps us, gives us some handles to have a fuller appreciation of what Paul is doing. So Ephesians 5, verses 17 through 33, and what comes before it is really a corollary passage to what Paul is doing in Colossians 3. So you're going to see some similarities in even language and structure from Colossians 3 to Ephesians 5. Same author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving to two different church contexts these words. 
Ephesians 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is very familiar to Colossians 3 here. Same kind of language that Paul is using. Then in verse 20 he says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Paul quotes Genesis here. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want you to see the model of submission. Uh, there, there are many misconceptions of submission, but as Paul is talking about the love that a husband is to have for his wife, a wife to have for her husband, Paul grounds it in this Christocentric model of how Christ sacrificially loves the church and how church the imperfect bride responds to Christ's love now notice what Paul is saying here in verse 23 he talks about the husband as the head so submission is recognizing God's granted ordering of the family Paul doesn't give any disclaimers when he says in verse 23 that the husband is the head. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he comes back to this statement by saying the man is the head of a woman. In many, in a 20th century context, certainly in a 21st century context, hear that and it sounds so archaic. It sounds so, would we say, offensive. And so you'll hear these little cliches oftentimes, even in church context, certainly, where, uh, well, my husband might be the head, but I'm the neck, and I turn the head whichever way that I want it to go. So we, we hear that, we say that. It softens it for us in many ways. It softens it. But what we've misunderstood is we equate head, we equate it with hierarchy. So if the husband, in a misappropriation of this passage, is the head, then some people will say, well, is that saying that the husband is more important? And the answer is no. Is that saying that he is more uh, spiritually value and the, uh, valued? And the answer is no. Is this saying that he is of a greater essence, that he has more of the imago Dei, the image of God in him? And the answer is no. Paul isn't talking about essence he isn't talking about value. He is talking about responsibilities and roles. He is talking about function. 
John Howard Yoder, an Anabaptist theologian, would say of this passage here that equality of worth is not equality of roles. So there is, in the context of Paul, a delineation of roles and responsibilities. As he says in verse 23 and 24, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We need to remind ourselves of this rich model. What is the model of the wife and the husband, the husband and the wife here? Where, what is Paul grounding this relationship in? Well, what he's doing is, is he's given us this rich model of Christ and the church. How Jesus, in the ultimate act of submission, submitted to the Father's call upon his life before the foundation of the earth. To be a sinless substitute for us sinful humanity. And Jesus, when he submits in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the ultimate act of a submissive prayer, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. All of us in this room would understand that Jesus is not of less importance than the Father, It's not that Jesus has 50% of divinity within him. He's 100% divine, 100% man, and he's submitting to the calling of a distinct role upon his life as he submits to the Father's will. And so what we're seeing Paul saying here is, as Jesus loves the church, then the church responds to Christ's sacrificial love, not out of coercion, not out of guilt, Not out of manipulation, not out of, I've got to do this, but the sacrificial love of our Savior gives us the impetus to, as a bride of Him, to respond with gratitude and thanksgiving. And so Paul, he couches all of this in Christ. The metaphor, the analogy is Christ's love for his bride. And it reminds us that as we think through the call of the wife to the husband, the wife to uh, the, the husband to the wife, it's important for us to not lose that context, to not lose that foundation. Another way to think about this is to, is to, to, to move out for a second and to think of, of an analogy, to think of, of dancing. I'm not much of a dancer at all, really, but I've watched Dancing with the Stars two or three times, so I'm an expert, I guess, in dancing. And so one of the things that you know about dancing, one of the things that that I know about dancing is that both can't lead. if If you have the music right and both partners or intending to lead one another, then it's awkward at best. It's stiff. It's ugly at worst. 
Oftentimes, if both are leading, then, then they're going to step on each other's toes. If both are leading, they're going to knock foreheads. If both are leading, they're, they're trampling over one another. So it isn't that one partner is more important than the other partner. They're equal in essence, but they have distinct roles and responsibility to be able to, to perform a beautiful, grace-filled dance. And there's some of you in your marriage that one partner isn't dancing. She's stiff, he's stiff, unmoving, not willing, certainly under the, the, the music of marriage, but not willing to, to be led as the wife or to lead as the husband. And there are others of you that are in this room that both of you are trying to lead. Both of you are trying to have the distinct role and responsibility of that. And so you're moving back and forth, pushing and pulling one another. And in each of these scenarios, the outcome is marital exhaustion. You're so tired because you're fighting against each other. You're so tired because you're holding one uh, up and trying to keep them to the beat of the music of marriage and you're trying to, to move them. And so what Christ says is, is to heed and to hear the melody of his imagery upon us, that Christ is the impetus for us, that his love for his sinful bride is, is, is really a portrait of how we are called to love one another, not out of coercion, not out of manipulation, not out of guilt, not out of force, but as he has designed it. So I want you to see the model. I want you to see the misconceptions, but I want us to see the manifestation. What, what could this look like in the real world? Well, look again in Ephesians 5. Look again at verse 24. Because this is a passage that's been taken out of context and it's become a pretext that a lot of things have fallen at the footsteps of this verse that are outside of God's will and God's design. Paul says, submit to your husband in everything. But we need to understand that this verse isn't just a proverb that comes without any other context. It presupposes verses 18 through 21 that comes prior to this admonition to the wife. And it presupposes a husband and a wife that is described in verses 18 through 21 who are filled with the Spirit, as Paul says. Giving thanks, being filled with praise, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21 is an essential, essential verse in understanding what Paul is going to call husbands and wives to specifically later on in Ephesians 5. See, what Paul is saying in the context of the body of Christ, that we are called to serve one another, that we are called to love one another in the body of Christ sacrificially. That is not a call that is exclusively for the husband nor exclusively for the wife. It is a call for all of us as believers. And you want to know when marriage is exhausting. You want to know when marriage has something that is spiritually not healthy. You'll know it by the pronouns. You'll know it by the pronouns. Because I will replace we. Mine will replace ours. Him, Christ, gets replaced with me, mine, now, 
my rights, my demands, my privileges. And Paul couches what we're going to hear about marriage in the sense that we're called to have this uh, servanthood attitude to one another, a willingness to serve one another in Christ. So as we think about what Paul is saying in verse 24, he says, everything, serve your husband, submit to your husband in everything, but that everything is in agreement with the nature of Christ. It presupposes a husband who's attempting to love his bride as Christ loves the church. And guess what? Wives, your husband will fall short of that continuously. You did not marry Jesus. You did not need me to tell you. You didn't marry Jesus. You know that very well. But your husband is imperfect, just as you are imperfect, uh, as, as beautiful as you dress up. I tell this to brides all the time, is no matter how handsome the groom is, no matter how beautiful the bride is, there are two sinners that are saying, I do. And so there has to be something deeper that holds us together in marriage here. So if we're going to sum up for us what it means as a, as a wife loves her husband... And, and, and assist him in the journey of what God has called him to, and it's not an adversary against him, then how can we sum up Ephesians and Colossians? How can we come to some principles to, to live into this week? Well, again, we need to say what this passage isn't saying. So wives, this passage is not calling you to obedience. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul has obedience in his vocabulary. He's going to talk in Colossians chapter 3 about children being obedient to their parents. So he knows the word. He could have gone there, but he doesn't go there. The husband isn't called to be the boss and the wife, the employee. That's not what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that the wife loses her sense of self. It doesn't mean that the wife loses a sense of identity. It doesn't mean that the wife loses her voice in decision making. But what does it look like? I've always thought as I've looked at this passage here that verse 33 gives us some, some insights of what does it mean for the wife to respect her husband. I mean, we could go in a, in, in a million different examples. But it doesn't mean less than these three points. That wives, you, you are called to pray for your husband. I know you know this and I know you do this. But there is no greater gift to your husband than you faithfully interceding for him. There is no greater gift than you asking Christ to be the center of your marriage and for your husband to look more like Christ and less like his sinful self. Secondly, by supporting your husband, not only praying for your husband, but supporting your husband, supporting him in work, supporting him and affirming him, supporting him and encouraging him to be a part of what God's doing in this faith family here. Oftentimes, one of the most toxic things that can occur in any marriage is the little jabs and belittling words that become the constant communication of a couple. And it's fun. Because we're friends, but when your steady diet is tearing one another down, pointing out faults, all in the laugh, all in the name of fun, you have a steady diet of five years of that, 10 years of that, 11 years of that, 13 years of that, 33 years of that, you'll recognize that the water of discouragement, it washes out the bridge 
of intimacy. Encourage, support, pray, work with and not against your husband. So there are a lot of things that we could talk about. But their budgetary priorities, their financial priorities, their uh, raising of children, the discipline of children, receiving care and protection. And every day we have to make little steps to say, how can we dance together and not against one another? It might be helpful just to stop and say what Paul is doing here. It might be helpful just to say 15,000 feet, 25,000 feet, 30,000 feet. Notice that Paul in Ephesians 5, he has more to talk about with marriage than in any other part of all of the New Testament. The most extended exposition of what is essential for those of you that are married and even those of you that are praying that God would bring a spouse into your life. And notice how he centers marriage. He doesn't center marriage in attraction. He doesn't center marriage in compatibility. He doesn't center marriage in a shared sense of humor or a shared sense of love for hobbies and those kinds of things. Now, all of those things are important. All of those things are important, but none of those things are essential. And it's important for us sometimes to just step back and say, what is essential? Two years ago, three years ago, I'm walking into an assisted living home. The couple that I was visiting had been married for 72 years. I walked into their room, downsized all of their possessions. Two double beds that were in there. Reading table in between them. Miss June was helping her husband finish lunch I, I'd heard that his dementia had increasingly got worse and worse I hadn't seen them for months and so it took me aback a little bit when I heard him several times and I'll say now, now you are my wife and she would say yes honey 72 years finish your lunch It was sad. I've been married 18 years. No greater gift that God has blessed me with on an earthly plane than my wife, Danielle. And I just thought for a moment what Danielle would feel like. And so I said, Miss June, I, I can't imagine how hard this is. And she said, you know something, David, there, there are good days and there are bad days. But I really love him more now than I ever have. That can only be said when a marriage is centered in Christ. Couples, you need to know this. That if your center is attraction, it doesn't always hold. If your center is your personality, it doesn't always hold. If your center is compatibility, it doesn't always hold. Because this is the truth of any marriage. Memory can fade. Our looks change. 
Life takes us down circumstances that we never would have imagined. And we look up years down the road and, and we say to ourselves, you are so different and, and you are so different than the person that I married. But when Christ is the center of marriage, that always holds. What's holding your marriage? Let us pray. Lord, we recognize that one of the greatest gifts that we receive is the gift of relationships and friendships. And there are times where you have placed a calling upon our lives to marriage and it is a, it is a grand gift that is bestowed by your sovereign will. We recognize that today is not a day to say husbands be better husbands, wives be better wives. Today is a day to say, God, we desire more than anything else to fall more in love with you. And out of the overflow of Christ in us, may we would extend that Christ-centered love to our spouses. Today I pray for the person that does not know you as Savior and as Lord. This sermon makes no sense whatsoever. Because there's never been a time where they've received the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. May today be a day that they realize that while they were far from you, you died for them. May today be a day that we center our marriage in something that always holds. Circumstances change. Emotions, they, they falter. Looks, memory, all of this passes. But you, at the center, you're always steady. You're always sure. It's in your name we pray. As you